Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 46 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, and Dolores Lozano. Sad week in the world of sports and the world in general as a three-time heavyweight champ, former Olympic gold medalist, activist, and poet, Muhammad Ali passed away on Friday at the age of 74. And, uh, you know, while I'm not old enough to remember an Ali fight, I definitely remember him from the 1996 Olympics and, uh, you know, kind of what he's meant for pop culture and politics here in the United States. So I guess in honor of Muhammad Ali's passing, uh, what are some of y'all's initial reactions? Well, he inspired some of the best sports writing uh, of of our era, of all time, maybe. I mean, obviously, he was a polarizing figure. Some people loved him. Some people hated him, basically because of his politics, because of the way he addressed issues like racial violence, uh, war. You know, obviously, stood up against the war as well. So um, a pivotal figure and guy, a guy I knew about mostly secondhand from really good sports writers that I went back and read. There's actually a collection, The Greatest Sports Writing of the Century, uh, which has an entire chapter devoted to Muhammad Ali and what was written about him. So a very fascinating figure. I've gone back and watched old fights. Um, he's obviously, you know, a tremendous athlete and also just a very charismatic, energetic figure that people were just attracted to. Keith Olbermann had a piece on The Ringer this week where he talked about he just seemed to have this psychic energy to him. And I think that uh, certainly that's what a lot of people connected to. But it's interesting how polarizing he was, the way people wrote about him. I'm looking at The Chronicle has a piece about him. Uh, I'm just going to quote a line from it. It said, um, talking about... Uh, how he was basically prosecuted for not signing up for the war, for not uh, being eligible for the draft, or or for not being in the draft. Um, This came after Ali had made three separate appeals to have his draft status changed due to what he called his nonviolent Muslim faith and membership in the Nation of Islam, which is kind of a slight there, what he called his Muslim faith. I don't know. The wording of that seems a little bit suspect to me. So still a polarizing figure, still a guy that people struggle to write about in a way that I think is like respectful and commensurate with uh, with his uh, impact on culture. Muhammad Ali's funeral will be this week in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, you know, his hometown where he grew up. And uh, I believe President Bill Clinton is going to be giving the eulogy. But if you just look at some of the quotes from, you know, all the people that he impacted in the world, uh, President Barack Obama tweeted out that he shook up the world and the world's better for it. Rest in peace, champ. George Foreman, if you'll remember who he fought uh, in, in quite a memorable bout, uh, said that Ali, Frazier, and Foreman, we were one guy and one part of me slipped away. The greatest peace, Muhammad Ali. Uh, Mike Tyson, God came for his champion. So long, great one. So obviously a lot of people were impacted by everything that he did, you know, whether it was standing up for what he believed in or, you know, kind of his personality, his trash talking and everything that he did in the boxing ring. So he was definitely... One of the greatest, if not the greatest. But uh, Jeremy Dolores, do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah, uh, he's famous for saying, uh, I don't need boxing, boxing needs me. And I, I can't think of a better way to think of uh, his legacy than, than that quote. Um, I can't imagine what boxing would be like without Muhammad Ali. Uh, I remember seeing a, a video that somebody was passing around here upon hearing of his death that it was a, a video of him dodging something like 21 punches. I forget who he was fighting, but it was just an amazing. I mean, the guy had speed and for his size too. I mean, just that size and speed ratio is just amazing to watch um, in action. So um, of course, you know, it's, it's really 
Um, it's really sad to hear how he passed. I know that you know he'd been suffering from Parkinson's since like the 80s, and um, certainly had a tumultuous personal life to go along with that illness. But um, certainly, he will always be remembered as uh, as a great one in this sport of boxing, and really in uh, American sports culture for uh, forevermore. Yeah, and one of my favorite quotes from Muhammad Ali was, uh, "Service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on Earth." And he provided a lot of service to a lot of people across the world. And he was an inspiration, and it's really sad to see him pass. Well, of course, he has been sick for ages, and it is sort of a referendum on the sport of boxing, I think, his illnesses and the way he struggled and sort of watching him deteriorate, which has been written about for a number of years. So, uh, you know, if the greatest of all time, almost indisputably, can pass away like that and obviously, you know, suffer the way he suffered. I mean, I think that a lot of people have issues with boxing. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I don't watch boxing anymore. I don't pay for boxing. I don't contribute to that in the same way that I sort of struggle with watching football and people get injured, CTE, all that stuff. So boxing was kind of the first sport we had that sort of national conversation about what does the sport do to athletes? And we see it playing out now in the NFL uh, and collegiate and high school sports as well. Yeah, boxing was once America's most popular sport. You know, you go back to the 1930s, 1940s, and then I would say that after Muhammad Ali, you know, Frazier and, and Foreman, it kind of started to take a little bit of a dive. And, and now, you know, most people just don't watch boxing at all, which is kind of fascinating. But uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and uh, rest in peace, Muhammad Ali. Um, that was very poetic. I could tell from the way that you're smiling that you've been really saving that one up. <laughs> Did you plan that yesterday? No, actually, I just... Googled Muhammad Ali quotes, and that was the first one that came up. So I just added the rest in peace, Muhammad Ali. So uh, <laughs> you're welcome for the creative genius. Great but, work. Uh, in, in other big news this week, uh, the Big 12 Conference seems like they always want to be in the news. Uh, they actually voted on a conference championship game that they're going to bring back in 2017. And this was actually a unanimous decision. And something else that the Big 12 decided is that they weren't going to have a conference network, which leaves a lot of people to believe that expansion might not actually happen. Uh, just for me personally, I think it's insane to have a conference championship game when you only have 10 teams and when every team plays each other. So you've got a true round robin. Uh, I'm not sure that there's any net benefit in adding this game. Uh, that, you know, I, I guess... There would be that 13th factor of playing a potentially ranked team to help with the college football you know, selection committee, but I'm just not sure that if you are an 11-1 Oklahoma team, that playing a you know 8-4 TCU team and having that chance of losing is good for the conference. I mean, the conference is going to get an extra $30 million in revenue, but if you really want to get in a college football playoff, like the conference says... Is this really the best way? It seems like a quick fix, kind of like a bandit on the problems that they're having. Obviously, that are not. Uh, they are losing ground with the other conferences, I believe, and so this is a measure that does get their name in about them again, um, but it doesn't really do anything for them except for that thirty million dollars. So I, I would be personally gratified to see exactly that scenario you described knock out a potential Big Twelve team from the college football playoffs. Because to me, as one of the dumbest short-sighted moves uh, that I've ever seen. Yeah, this is uh, just silly. I mean, it's moronic. I, I can't, like, if we go down the list of scenarios that could have played out uh, when this meeting took place, like, what was the worst case scenario for the Big 12? And it was to add a conference championship without expanding. Um, this, I mean, we're really giving into a lot of the media hype 
um, and, and get, putting this game up, uh, it just it increases the chances that a Big 12 member will not make it to the college football playoff every year. I mean, OU this past year proved that we didn't need a conference championship game to get into the playoff, even though they performed, they underperformed really when it came to that game. But um, this is just a worst case scenario. I, I couldn't think of a worse way for this meeting to end. Of course, um, for me, you know, uh, my uh, sports focus has been overshadowed by, by Baylor here and, of course, the hiring of Jim Grobe. But, um, yeah, this is – for the Big 12, this is a big step back. I actually like that there's going to be a championship game. But I can't agree with only 10, 10 uh, teams in the Big 12. It really doesn't make sense. But hopefully we can get U of H into the Big 12. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious, with the way things are set up right now, with just 10 teams in the Big 12 and the league approving a conference championship game unanimously, what about it do you like? You're actually the first person that I've heard say that. I just really like football, so that's an extra game that I get to watch. Okay, I guess that's a fair point, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess from a league perspective, I just don't know that it makes sense if you want to try to get into that college football playoff, having a, a chance for your unbeaten team to lose. In fact, I believe there was a stat put out by ESPN this week that said teams that were on the verge of going to uh, the national championship game, if they were ranked, I believe, in the top three of the BCS, uh, while the Big 12 was a 12-team league, I believe that the, the favorites were actually six and five in those games and so the big 12 lost out on several occasions of having a team represent them in the uh, national championship game because of a league championship so it does have some benefit in giving you that 13th factor of having potential to beat a ranked team but you can also slip up when you know you were undefeated in the regular season then you lose to a baylor or tcu in the in the championship game so I think this decision is strictly about money. I'm not sure that it's about anything else. Well, let's not forget uh, the, the Big 12 network. That's that's the bigger thing to me. I mean, they, the, the game is a disaster, yes, but um, the Big 12 network not happening is still evidence to me that UT is still in charge of this entire operation and that the Longhorn network is the elephant in the room, of course, that we're not going to talk about because UT has that, what, through 2025 or something like that. So it's, um, it's just still more of the same for the Big 12. Um, and so... Hopefully here uh, in the next couple of years, uh, some things can happen and maybe we can add two more conference members and be a 12-member league again. I think the important thing is if you do add two teams, they have to be teams that are going to bring value. And I think it's interesting, Red McCombs, who is a big donor for the University of Texas, said that uh, it's idiotic not to invite the University of Houston. I actually said invite U of H and then I don't care who the other ones, just pick them. So it's interesting to see how there's kind of this infighting within the university. But at the end of the day, Red McCombs can say what he can say whatever he wants. But if he keeps donating, the university's not going to listen to him. And so I think if, uh, you know, he actually says, I'm not going to donate until the U of H gets an invite, then I think people are going to start to listen. But right now, I think it's just uh, rhetoric going on. But you know, if you do have a lot of extra money, I think that there's probably one thing that you should do, and that's go to We Desserts here in Houston to spin that in a, a way that is quite beneficial. Anyone who's listened to this podcast for any length of time knows that we love our sponsor, We Desserts at 3411 Kirby. Uh, they do it all, really, but uh, one way we've particularly enjoyed them lately has been the cakes that they make, special ordered 10-inch um, cakes or 6-inch cakes. Uh, you can call for prices. Their number is 713-487-9788. And they've got things like uh, chocolate with buttercream, vanilla bean, yellow cake with fudge icing, strawberry cream cake, funfetti, 
whatever that is, chocolate Nutella and banana caramel. So a lot of delicious options there at We Desserts. That's 713-487-9788 at 3411 Kirby. And uh, you've got a very nice new tagline here that I've uh, been instructed to tell you guys about. It's We Desserts, pastry chef quality made with love. We desserts. Absolutely. Tell Penny and Jen that the guys and the finesse queen at the Weekly Brew sent you by, and you'll get 10% off of your order. That's 3411 Kirby here in Houston. Uh, but also, we want to remind you that if you want to keep up with all of our work, that you can find us on social media. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also subscribe to our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post all of our content there each Monday, and it's pushed to your inbox. But also, shout out to the Scott and Holman podcast, the uh, U of H podcast that uh, we've mentioned a few times on the show. I was actually a guest on their podcast this week, and unfortunately, we spoke about Art Browse and the, the controversy at Baylor with the, uh, the sexual assault scandal that has kind of put a black eye on the university. But if you want to, go ahead and check that out. Uh, just search Scott and Holman on SoundCloud and iTunes, and that podcast is up right now. But uh, thanks to those guys for allowing me to come on this week as a guest. Without further ado, we actually have a packed show on deck today. We welcome Kevin Eschenfelder from Root Sports Southwest. We're going to talk Astros and U of H Cougars with him. Also, we have Ethan Rothstein from Dream Shake. We go into a little bit of Mike D'Antoni talk and uh, kind of what we can look forward to heading into next season with the Houston Rockets. And we also talk with AJ Newharth Koish from USA Today and kind of dig into the uh, NBA playoffs right now and what we can expect. But as always, we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've discussed the Houston Astros on the podcast, and my goodness, they've been playing a lot better as of late. If you look at their records, uh, in April, they were 7-17. and 17. In May, they started to turn things around with a 17-12 and 12 record. And here in June, they're off to a hot start. And joining us on The Weekly Brew podcast to discuss the Astros and more is Kevin Eschenfelder, who works with Root Sports Southwest. And Kevin, thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. And, you know, from being around the team, what seems to be the difference with the club as they've, you know, kind of moved on from that slow start in April to almost being more of a loose team? Uh, a lot of things. I guess success is probably the first thing. You know, success breeds success. And when things start rolling, and you know, it was a matter of time before you got more than a couple of guys hot. Altuve's been good all season long, but he hasn't had a whole lot of help. And you know, it was just a matter of time before you started getting multiple people starting to heat up George Springer I think the team has is won what nine out of 11 since he's been moved into the leadoff spot and that you know sometimes it just takes a little bit whether it's coincidence whether whatever the case may be sometimes it takes just a little tweak and all of a sudden things take off and again it's a it's such a long season and in this day and age we, we tend to, to dwell so much on a a short period of time or a short span of a six-month season and uh, you know a lot of things can change, and they usually do in baseball. It's basically the way it works. I'm going to go ahead and jump in here on George Springer. I mean, you've mentioned since A.J. Hinch moved from the top of the lineup. I mean, he's batting, I think, four in the 480s, 470s. I mean, he's he's been lights out there, and he brings that power to the top of the lineup, but he also has that speed. And if you look at his game from a defense, defensive perspective, he's one of the best outfielders in baseball. If you look at the advanced metrics, his wins above replacement lead the American League. I mean, how is this healthy Astros since he's moved into that leadoff spot? Does it kind of help Altuve? you know potentially drive him in does it give him better pitches to see i think it's uh, well yeah you know anytime you know you get a chance for altuve i don't think altuve needs to see better pitches to hit because he just 
He's just that good of a hitter. But that said, uh, A.J. Hinch talked about the mentality of putting George Springer in the leadoff spot. He liked the fact that he thought George became a much more controlled hitter whenever he was in the leadoff spot and not necessarily trying to hit the baseball out of the ballpark. George can do that without trying to. He asked him the other day, he said, you know, you see those big swings every now and again from George Springer where he goes down to that one knee. And A.J. Hinch asked him, he said, how many hits have you gotten when you're down on that one knee? And Springer said nine. He goes, then I wouldn't do it. So uh, I think I think there's whether it's a mindset of, you know, you're not in a power position, although baseball has changed now and everybody's in a power position. But that said, I think he has cut down on his swing a little bit and a controlled swing, not necessarily less of a swing, but a more controlled swing because he can hit the baseball out of the ballpark without swinging from his, you know, without leaving his spikes in the dirt. He can, he can leave, uh, he can leave the ballpark in a hurry. And speaking of guys that can, uh, you know, force the ball to leave the ballpark in a, in a hurry, I, I look at Evan Gaddis. I mean, he's was sent down to Corpus Christi, you know, to work on his catching abilities to kind of uh, give Jason Castro a little bit of a break behind the plate. And he's caught the last four games for the Astros. And on Friday night, he had four hits. I mean, how important is that for the club to have his offensive production coming from the catcher's position? Uh, it's it's huge, obviously. You know, from that because that's something that let's face it, uh, Jason Castro was really good offensively. What was it three seasons ago? And uh, you know, has not really had a been able to string together a whole lot of success offensively since then. But that said, uh, Evan Gaddis to me, you know, you knew he was going to get hot offensively, and he'll probably cool back off again and then get hot again. But what I liked about him is I'm just amazed at his ability, his catching ability. He had caught I think 139 right. games in the big leagues before the season. I mean, you know, he threw out five straight base runners. His footwork is really, really good. I'm not a I'm not a major league, you know, former major league player that can analyze these things, but you just—he looks very much the part. And what impresses me is the way he works with pitchers. You never see confusion. You never see, you know, a guy shaking him off and then shaking him off again, and all of a sudden Gaddis having to go out to the mound to discuss what pitch they're going to throw. I mean, he drops fingers and they go. And uh, it's, you know, it, it's really there. You can really tell that for a guy that has limited experience as a catcher, that he's doing his work behind the scenes, talking with these pitchers, meeting with these pitchers, and understanding how they want to attack hitters. And both of those guys are on the same page. You know, they say that you don't want a pitcher to think. You want him to see what he's going to throw and go. And that's what uh, that's what you're seeing from Evan Gaddis. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about, you know, in the past shows, uh, we've talked about how the Astros pitching staff has kind of uh, struggled uh, to start the season, but it seems like they're finally starting to come on, and I, I don't know if Gaddis has anything to do with that, but you look at two guys in the bullpen, specifically for me, Will Harris, who's been lights out pretty much the entire season, and, uh, you know, Michael Feliz, who had the rough outing to start the year, but since then, he's been throwing gas, his velocity is up there, uh, he just seems to be almost unhittable, and that's kind of helped the Astros within the back end of that bullpen, uh, what do you think? How do you see those two in terms of potentially uh, maybe moving into that eighth and ninth inning slot? I mean, I, I know we've got Gregerson kind of slotted in there, but he struggled a little bit of late. But do you think Feliz and Harris could challenge for possibly that closer role, or do you kind of like them in that in that setup mentality? You know, that's that's the uh, that's the that's the question. That's why managers make a, a lot a lot of money is because they have to they have to weigh the, the you know kind of get that balance of well do you move a guy out of a spot where he's being very very productive now into a spot that might be more important or do you leave him where he is because he's been so very good michael Feliz, i mean 
he's, he's practically unhittable. I mean, it, it, it is smooth gas. I mean, you're not talking about a guy that goes out there and looks like he's laboring to throw 97. He just rears back and throws it. And, uh, and it's with movement. And, uh, you know, so Michael Felice, I, I talk with, you know, the guys I do the games with, Mike Stanton or, or Howe, and uh, both of those guys are talking about the fact that because he, he eps so effortlessly can, you know, can reach the upper 90s and nearly triple digits that he may be a guy that may be slotted in the future as a starter. Well, you know, that said, he also to me reminds me of a guy that, that could be a closer for this team as well. As for Will Harris, he just goes out and gets, gets the job done. And for a guy who was basically claimed off waiver, waivers from Arizona a couple of years ago, I mean, you look at his numbers and how his career has taken off. It's, it's really it's a great example of a guy figuring it out a little bit later on in his career. And not that he's old by any means, but uh, a guy that's been through and seen the failures. But now this is, you know, after last season, let's face it, Astros would not have been in the position they were in last year without Will Harris. He was as good as it got out of the bullpen. Neshek was really good, obviously. But uh, last year, Will Harris was phenomenal. He's picked up right where he left off. A lot of times you'll see a reliever who makes a huge jump as far as the innings pitched from one season to the next really fall off the season after that. And Will Harris, I think he may be better than he was last year. And then one guy that, you know, is doing better this year compared to last year is Fister. I mean, I'd argue that he's been one of the Astros' most consistent starting pitchers this season. And Friday night, of course, uh, another great outing, lowered his ERA. How important has he been to the club and kind of providing that stability early on in the season when guys like Dallas Keuchel have kind of struggled out of the gate but are starting to find their groove over the last few games? If you look back at Doug Fister, last year uh, I think he pitched hurt with Washington. But if you look at the two seasons before that, you're talking about a guy that won 30 games between the two seasons. And, uh, you know, he's only a one injury type season removed from that. So I thought in spring training that he was in a situation where he could be a huge key for this team. And certainly he's paid off. His consistency is not a matter of him. He's not a guy that's going to blow people away. But, uh, man, he has spots. He changes speeds. And that's what you call pitching. But, yeah, they'd be, in, they'd be in trouble if it had not been for Doug Fister in the way he's pitched so far. And consistency has been the key for him. So for those that watch the Astros games, I mean, I could just tell you that uh, I love watching the games on Root Sports. It's uh, definitely, you know, everything from the pregame show to uh, the postgame wrap-up show. But kind of take us through what the typical day looks like from you in terms of, you know, working with Stan, working with Hal, working with Julie Morales, and uh, just kind of arranging that pregame show. And what type of effort and work goes into that? Well, you know, usually uh, it'll start the night before, after the game, the previous game. And we'll look at what happened in that game and what we want to talk about the next day. We sit down with the producer, kind of come up with a game plan. Uh, The producers get it all together. They take our input as to what we want to talk about. And it's the producer's job to to put it together and and decide on how the order in which we're going to talk about it. Uh, They come, we come in the next day, you know, a couple hours before showtime and uh, they have a game plan laid out and the, it's nothing is scripted. We just basically have a an outline of what we're going to talk about, and uh, that's how it works. And we try to figure out, you know, what's important, what uh, what trends are happening, not only with the Astros but other teams in the big leagues, and and uh, try to get people an idea of what these guys. Uh, a combination of not only what's going on with the team at the time from a stats and from a 
uh, situation on the field, but also maybe something off the field too that we can we can tell you about these guys. We talked about George Springer last night and his uh, his say program, and uh, so try to take you behind the scenes and, and get you to know these players a little bit away from the field as well. So uh, obviously, Kevin, you're a U of H alum. I'm a U of H alum. They are very near and dear to my heart, and you've been the voice of Cougar football. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, as as an alum, you know, as probably I would imagine a fan as well as a professional, uh, is there a more exciting time uh, in U of H football going into next season with the big OU game that you can recall? It's been a while. I tell you what, it's it's been a it's been a long while, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And you know, it all started it all started on December 31st with the win over uh, you know over Florida State, and. and People have to understand too that that Houston starts the season next year. Two of their first three games are at home, or, or basically a neutral site game against the number three team in the country. And week three is a Thursday night game, a short week game against Cincinnati at Cincinnati. That's that's a very very tough start to a season. You know, we'll see how obviously it plays out. But yeah, I'm very excited and and with good reason. Uh, there's there's you know. A lot of buzz about the program, and uh, they've earned it. They they came out. Uh, they were just phenomenal all season long last year. Uh, never seen a team more prepared to play week in and week out than the University of Houston was last season. It was really amazing. I think the preparation probably is a credit to Coach Tom Herman and his staff, and obviously anybody that's affiliated with U of H, we're very grateful to have him. And I think uh, some of us are also pessimistically wondering how long do we have him because he's one of the hottest names. You've got Texas and Texas A&M. Both guys are on the hot seat there. What uh, What is it going to take uh, to keep Herman in Houston, and is it even possible for a university like Houston to, to keep hold of a guy like that? Time will tell. I mean, I... I can't, you know, we all know it is what it is, but uh, time will tell. You just, you know, you, you had guys stay at, uh, stay at Boise State for a long time and without them being in a, in a Power Five conference, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a realist, uh, but at the same time, just my opinion is that I, I don't think, I think the next time or, or uh, Tom Herman is not going someplace where he's not going to have a, uh, it, it's, He's not going to a middle of the road program, and uh, if he ever if he does leave, and I'm not saying he's going to, but uh, you know I'm just I'm the I'm of the kind I'm of the type that I say, why worry about what might happen and just enjoy what's happening right now. Sometimes right. I think we caught up, get too caught up on what's what what might happen rather than enjoying what's happening at the time. So I choose to enjoy what's happening right here at the time. Well, I'll tell you what's happening right now is that uh, Greg Ward's getting some some preseason Heisman buzz, as he did last season before uh, some injuries kind of derailed that, I think. But um, what uh, do you think that this is going to be the year of Greg Ward? Obviously, his senior year, he'll be graduating, and we'll see Kyle Allen come in. But is this the year that we might have another Heisman winner back in Houston? I, I don't know. That's that's pretty high. That's that is, Those are some high expectations, but I don't see why not. I mean, as far as just thinking about it right now. But, you know, I think there's there's other – pieces in it to that offensive puzzle that are going to make Greg Ward even better. And one's a guy named Duke Catalan, who I think is going to be a fantastic running back. Just remember the name. I know you don't know much about him now, but Duke Catalan, I think, is going to be a phenomenal running back. Greg, Greg Ward, is uh, it's going to be about him staying healthy, being able to stay upright, because I think he's going to become a better passer. He, he was a better passer last year than he was the year before. I think next year, with a even better grasp of the offense, he's going to become even better. Greg is one of those guys that it doesn't matter. He, he became, you could really see him mature as a quarterback as the season went on. 
learn to have uh, when not to take those big hits, when to step out of bounds, that it wasn't worth another two yards to, to take a hit. And, and you could really see him grow. He's a very smart young man, and I, I expect big things again from him this season. But, uh, again, he's going to have a lot more weapons, I think, on the offensive side, so that's going to make him even more dangerous. So a lot of talk in the world of college football has been about uh, expansion with the conferences. The Big 12 has been the focus of a lot of that. Obviously, U of H, I think, would love to be in a Power 5 conference, but, again, Coach Tom Herman has said uh, that they don't need to be in a uh, Power 5 conference in order to be a champion. So what do you uh, foresee in terms of U of H's bid to be part of a large or, you know, one of those Power 5 units uh, as these expansion talks kind of heat up? I just think it's all you can do is control what you can control. You put money into your program. You hire the best coaches you can hire. Go out and get the best players you can get. Win games. Build up your program. Build up your facilities. That's all you can do. That's all the University of Houston can control. And, uh, yeah, I would love for them to be able to get into a Power 5 conference. But the way it's set up right now, they're in a good situation where they can win their league, they can get to, you know, the American Athletic Conference obviously is the uh, the group of six. I mean, they're the, it's the best conference as far as that is concerned outside the Power Five. Uh, they're in a situation where they can, they can get to a New Year's Day type bowl. And you know what? You run the table, you're knocking on the door of being able to get into the playoffs. So it is what it is right now, and you just have to win the games that you have to win. Look at their schedule next year. They play Oklahoma. They play at Cincinnati. They play Louisville. Uh, that's a that's a pretty heady company right there. So they've got a chance to really impress some people next year. At the same time, uh, it's not going to be by any means easy. And uh, they're in the conference they're in. Win the games you got to win. That's that's the way I look at it. As a Baylor alum, I think I might be you know kind of looking toward U of H next year to provide me some happiness uh, because of all the stuff that's going on with my program. <laughs> what I look at it too, though, is, is is I mean you have to be realistic about this too. And look who's voting on whether or not they're going to allow the University of Houston into the Big 12. I was there. I, re- I remember, you know, I can remember the mid-'70s when Houston went into the Southwest Conference. And, you know, they, they weren't allowed in for so long a period of time. And then once they got in, they won the conference three of the first four years. And, uh, and I, I mean, I know that, you know, I, I was a young kid, but at the same time I was a big fan at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think everybody knew – what they were capable of doing. So if you're a recruiter at TCU, at Texas, at Baylor, at name your school, and you're going into a kid's, you know, kid that's being recruited by Houston, and you're going in and recruiting against the Cougars, well, basically all you have is the fact that they're not in a Power 5 conference, and now you're going to take that leverage away from the recruiters if you let them in. So that's going to be, you know, that's just, that's reality. And that's what that's what they're going to have to deal with as far as, uh, as far as doing, you know, moving up and, and moving into a Power 5 conference. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how everything uh, kind of shakes itself out here over the next few months, see if the Big 12 actually does expand, and if not, where the U of H lands. But I think uh, Coach Tom Herman and U of H, they've done a great job of building up that program, the facilities, the upgrades that you see going on, everything from basketball to baseball to football. It's just remarkable, and it's great for the city of Houston. But Kevin, we definitely appreciate you uh, joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. And uh, for those that are interested in, you know, following your work, whether it be on Root Sports or on social media, what is the best way for them to find you? You know, I'm there before the Rockets and the Astros. Uh, we have a pregame and postgame 30 minutes before, usually a half hour after the game. You can hear from the players, managers, coaches, you name it. We've got it for you coming up 
on the post-game and the pre-game shows on Root Sports. I definitely recommend checking out high-quality production there on Root Sports. And uh, uh, be sure to also give Kevin a follow on Twitter at KevinEshRS. That's Root Sports. But, Kevin, we definitely appreciate you taking the time out and joining us this week on the podcast. It's been great. Anytime. Happy to do it, guys. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now on The Weekly Brew, we have A.J. Newharth-Koish, a USA Today national basketball writer, joining us here to talk about, as you might expect, basketball. How are you doing today, A.J.? day by day how about you well i'm doing very well thank you for asking uh enjoying the level of play we've seen so far in the playoffs and kind of speaking to that level of play i mean is there any conceivable way that the nba finals are going to live up to the western conference finals that we just witnessed i think it'll be hard to because they were i mean the western conference finals they played out just about as exciting as any western conference final series ever has you know and as much on the line as ever but uh i think i i think it will i think cleveland will We'll bounce back, and after that rough game one, and it'll—I think it'll be the final series everybody was hoping for. Yeah. Well, it's certainly the finals that the NBA was purportedly hoping for. I don't know if you saw the uh, item that made the rounds on Facebook and various blog sites, but uh, the NBA had leaked where it had already scheduled uh, the NBA finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Cavs even before the uh, Western Conference finals had been finished. Uh, did you see that? And what did you make of these conspiracy theories that people are tossing around? I don't know what to make of that actual conspiracy theory. I think, you know, for the past six months, everybody's just assumed it would be Golden State and Cleveland in the finals anyway. I mean, I saw it actually, um, I saw that happened on some report, I forget who it was. It was, uh, he was on a a Delta Airlines flight, and they actually had um, uh, on the TV in front of him a a preview video, um, like, commemorating the Warriors' 2016 championship run. So, you know, I think, (laughs) I think... You know, conspiracy theories are always fun, but I think it, it obviously it obviously helped the NBA. I mean, this is this is what everybody wanted, and this is you saw Game One was the most watched ABC Game One ever. So it, it definitely helps the NBA. It's definitely better than an Oklahoma City uh, Toronto series from a from a viewership standpoint. But you know, I think I don't know what to make of those conspiracy theories. So I don't know whether you follow Bill Simmons' work on The Ringer. Uh, we certainly do here. We're big fans. Uh, but he recently put out a piece about Durant and uh, how the fact that his ultimate destination may be more interesting to basketball fans than the actual NBA Finals. And while that's debatable, it's certainly on a lot of people's minds. Um, so Billy Donovan stepped in this year and I think proved himself to be a very competent coach very quickly, uh, certainly as compared to, say, a Scott Brooks, for instance. So do you think that having a guy like that at the helm is going to make a difference in terms of where Durant ultimately ends up? definitely plays a role I mean I think at first you know for the first large portion of the season it was kind of Donovan after spending 20 years at the college level it, it took a little while to to get the hang of it but he he definitely did I mean you saw you saw the way they played you saw the adjustments he made in game I mean he he proved to be definitely more than a competent coach and I actually think he wasn't really given the credit that he deserved from some people and I think you know for KD obviously the run that Thunder had, it ended disappointingly, but, you know, a lot of people didn't even expect them to get past the Spurs. So I think having Donovan there and just, you know, the development of, of Adams and, and Roberson played well, I mean, I think, and obviously, you know, Russell, who, you know, it, it, it kind of gets portrayed improperly that they kind of have this disconnect between them, and over the past couple of years, you know, they've become, you know, almost inseparable. So, So I think... To answer your question, in short, yes, I think Donovan being there does 
kind of intrigue him to stay a little bit more. So if you had to put money on it or, uh, let's say, gun to your head, do you think Durant is going to stay where he is? My gut is telling me that, you know, he stays. He does that one-on-one. He, he signs the, the two-year deal and has the option to opt out next summer with, with uh, Russell. Um, but, you know, he, this is where he spent his whole career, and I think a large part of him wants to do it here and do it in Oklahoma City, and especially this year they got so close. I mean, if, if you look at the end result, technically they were, you know, results-wise, the third-best team in the NBA this year. So there's not really anywhere else that he can go that would give him a better shot of the title. I mean, maybe if he head somewhere in the east because it would just be an easier road, but you still have to face LeBron and the Cavs. So, I mean, I think I think he wants to do it there. And if you notice um, in his uh, exit press conference, he referred to the Thunder as we the entire time. You know, he didn't say them. You know, he kept saying we, and he said the two most important things for him were, were playing basketball with people he loves and enjoying the game. And he said both those things, you know, are present in Oklahoma City right now. So... So it'll be interesting. It's definitely a huge storyline coming up. Boy, that two-year deal with the opt-out clause is discouraging because we uh, in the NBA community have talked about little else other than where Durant's going to end up, and that's just going to continue to fuel that fire next season. So uh, sad news there, I suppose. But on to the NBA Finals, uh, which is the actual basketball taking place right now. You have Cavs and Warriors. Warriors, the team of destiny. A historic 73-win run coming back from a 3-1 deficit, which only 10 teams in NBA uh, history have ever done. And then versus the Cavs. Uh, deservedly the underdogs here, but uh, you know, last year we had a competitive series with just LeBron, basically, and a team of, uh, of other guys. And now you have Love and Irving as well. So tell me this. I mean, it looks like the Warriors are heavily favored. What do the Cavs need to do in order to win? What would it take for a Cavs victory here in the finals? Uh, you know, I, I analyzed all that before the series started, and then after the first game it kind of all switched up a little bit. I mean, they, they did a, a heck of a job putting down – Curry and Thompson. I mean, they, they took them out of the game. I mean, you guys, I'm sure, saw the stats. It was their worst, uh, the least points they've scored together since they've been playing together, and the Splash Brothers. And it's just with this Warriors team, when you have those guys that can beat you, I mean, Iguodala and Livingston, who would start on plenty of other teams in the NBA, they can just come on the floor and just beat you in so many different ways. It's, it's really tough. I mean, I think they need better play from their big three, uh, first and foremost. Uh, LeBron really, he, he, he was, I think it was uh, one assist away from a triple-double, but, I mean, he really, mm-hmm. if, if being one assist from a, away from a triple-double, you could be not playing that well, you know, that's what it was. I think he was kind of passive, and I think he shot, it was, you know, 9 for 22 or something like that, which, which isn't that great. He wasn't as aggressive as, you know, he had been in the previous series. And, you know, same thing with, with Kyrie. You know, I thought... Kyrie, he, he got, I mean, he got to the rack a lot. He got fouled a lot. But I think he needs to be a little more aggressive as well. And it, it really kind of starts with that big three. And if they don't play the best series of their lives, I don't see how they can overcome, you know, this, this Warriors team. Yeah, LeBron's an interesting character because you talk about 14 years in the league. There was a long stretch where he was indisputably the best player in the NBA, but you now have Steph Curry, the first unanimous MVP in league history. Um, and then you guys, guys like Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook. And so I'm just wondering, uh, from your perspective, where does LeBron now rank in terms of that top five or top ten players in the league discussion? I mean, I, I still think it's one and two, you know, LeBron and Curry. I think you, it's still pretty hard to dispute that LeBron isn't the best overall player from a talent standpoint. 
I mean, Curry, he's a, he's an offensive anomaly. I mean, the, the way he shoots the ball, the way he scores, the way he dribbles, everything, he's just he's absolutely incredible. But, but when you, you know, combine everything that LeBron has, you know, take away the whole – you know, maybe he shies away in, in the fourth quarter. He, he prefers to pass first when he should just be taking the ball to the rack. I mean, I think he's LeBron James. I mean, I think he's going to go down as a top-five player in league history, and I think the Cavs wouldn't be anywhere near where they are right now if it wasn't for him, obviously. So I think, you know, definitely it, it, it's one and two with him and Curry. So the Cavs have had their issues with coaches. Um, I've heard it said that LeBron is something of a player coach on the team uh, and has a lot of control over uh, schematics, personnel, I mean, you name it. He he has a lot of gravity, so to speak, in that locker room. Um, But obviously you had David Blatt is out. It was, uh, at the time, I think, a curious hiring and and also, at the time, a curious firing as well. So just in light of all that, in light of the uh, influence that James has over what this team does, how do you evaluate Teron Liu's performance thus far as the coach of the Cavs? Right, I mean, I think he doesn't, play the role that every most other coaches play I mean obviously you know he's there and he's the coach and he obviously plays a role but you know not not to the degree as some other coaches I think he's done you know very well I mean he, he came in here and I mean look where they are now obviously they have the talent but you know they they picked up the pace they started scoring more you know he's and he, he had no experience I mean he was playing in the league what four years ago so I, I think I think he's done very well to come in and take no, no matter how much talent you have on the team I mean it's the same thing as Oklahoma City you can have all the talent in the world but if your coach you know is incompetent you're not gonna be that successful and, and you see this team especially through the first three rounds of the playoffs uh, were just absolutely dominant and I think Lou has a good amount to do with that honestly <laughs> was that a little dig at uh, Scott Brooks there no no definitely not <laughs> <laughs> So when you talk about the Golden State Warriors, I mean, you're talking about history. 73 wins and uh, coming down from the 3-1 deficit against the Thunder. I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but I think it's something like 10 teams in league history have ever done that. 10 of uh, 233. Uh, so if they do come through and win the championship, and I personally predicted Warriors in six, and after game one, I, I sort of wish I had the courage to predict Warriors in five. But let's say they do break through and win the championship here. I mean, given all that they've accomplished this season, do they go down as the greatest team in NBA history? Uh, or if not, how close are they in that discussion? You know, it's it's so hard to compare. I mean, these arguments can be made all day, you know, forever. It's the same thing as, you know, comparing LeBron and MJ. I mean, it's 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 all it's different eras, you know. It, it's just it's just completely different basketball. I think definitely you have to put them in the conversation as the best team ever. I mean, the 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 things that they have done and the way that they've kind of taken the league by storm is just it's been incredible. I mean, it, it's not that often that you see a team dominate this much and just be the main storyline through the entire season, and and that's what they've done. So, you know, I know that doesn't really answer your question but they have to be considered you know one of the top two top three teams ever if they if they pull this out yeah so Warriors owner Joe Lacob has gone on record as saying uh, and I'm paraphrasing here that he's brilliant that a lot of the success they have is due to him um, which you know Bill Simmons has talked about being bad karma and so forth hasn't worked out that way so far um, but there is some truth to that I mean to my mind this Warriors team uh, organizationally seems to me like they could be the new wave Spurs like we might see them continually perennially year after year there at the end or near the end so I mean looking at this do you think that it's a fair comparison uh, between the organizations I do I mean I think it's it definitely based on what we've seen in the past two years but at the same time it's 
it's a little premature. Not not saying uh, you saying that, but I'm just saying. I mean, you see, the Spurs have been a dynasty for 20 years, you know, and the Warriors, what they've done, it's it's incredible, but it's been it's been two seasons. So I think from an organizational standpoint, definitely, I think they're they're very sound. You know, as sound as it comes, and and it seems like everybody has pretty good communication in that front office, but. You know, only time will tell. So anyone who uh, follows the NBA even remotely closely knows that the cap is rising precipitously over the next few years. And uh, so you look at that, and, and there's obviously a lot of free agents that are aligning their, uh, or a lot of players, rather, aligning their free agency with the rise in the cap structure in order to cash in on that. And so a lot of people said, this is going to be the year that we have East-West parity, that you know you got good teams in the East, good teams in the West— has not worked out that way. So I'm curious, with all of the possible free agent movement coming up, do you think that we might see some sort of market correction or, or balance in the force that would lead the East to be about on par with the West? You know, I don't know. I mean, you look at you look at all those big name free agents, and I, I don't know how how much that movement would really change the way it is. I think if if Cleveland, if their core stays the same, I think. Pretty much, no matter what you do, unless obviously Kevin Durant goes east, they're going to be the powerhouse in the east. I mean, obviously there were there were the Charlottes and and the Indianas that you know competed, and and it was it was such a jumble there in the you know fourth, fifth, and sixth, and seventh seeds in the east. But but I don't I don't see how you know one player here or there would would kind of take away from you know the parity that we don't have and and the uh, the Western Conference dominant because I mean you have you have Golden State who we've been talking about you have you have Oklahoma City who if KD stays they're just going to get better um, you have San Antonio who no matter what even t- if Tim Duncan retires even if Man Ginobili retires they're still going to be a powerhouse and then you have the Clippers who if they make a move which which they probably will they're going to be you know right there too so then you look out east and you have Cleveland and Toronto you know and that's basically it I mean you have Boston coming up. But, you know, I just don't see how one offseason could, you know, change the entire, you know, difference that we have between the two conferences. I guess I'm sort of hoping that uh, some of that top flight talent in the West does flee East because we are a Houston podcast and my Houston Rockets do play here in the West. And that's what we have to compete against in order to reach the NBA finals. But speaking of my Rockets, I feel like and I always love to get an outside national perspective because maybe I'm a little too close to it sometimes. But I feel like James Harden had an exceptional season uh, by almost any metric. I mean, you talk about a guy who led the league in scoring, uh, at least in total points, um, a historic 29-7-6 season we've talked about before uh, and yet he doesn't make an all NBA squad one two or three is that just the biggest oversight ever or is that perhaps a deliberate slight I mean historically it was you know one of the biggest slights ever I mean the man you know he he scored the most points this season in terms of overall points he was second in the league in scoring you know he I, I believe got to the free throw line you know first or second most amount I mean he he the Rockets I know it was a disappointing season for them, but they wouldn't have been a 500 team if it wasn't for James Harden. That's for sure. So I think, obviously, it's a, it's a it's a guard heavy league, and there are plenty of guys who are more deserving, like the you know guys that got on before him, because you know you, you see from from a team standpoint. But I think based on what he did statistically, you know whether or not he plays defense, whether or not the Rockets made the playoffs. I mean they did, but whether or not they suffer that huge drop-off, which they did, and it was disappointing. I think, you know, based on 
strictly the numbers he put up and the talent that he has, he's definitely an All NBA player. But it was kind of, I don't know. It, it, you know, it's it, it's interesting. Either 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 side, you you can see why or why not. So. It was an interesting flight for sure. So a final question for you, uh, sort of a macro question about basketball and the NBA. It seems like we're definitely seeing a trend, obviously, uh, in the league with more three-point shooting. I mean, you talk about it is commonplace now to see a fast break result in a three-point shot, which would have been unthinkable 10, 15 years ago, certainly. Um, and, of course, there are exceptional players like Steph and Clay who happen to play on the same team that can really light up the uh, three-point shot. But it does seem to be a more general trend as well. You also have the Rockets who have taken the most three-pointers in the league. So I'm curious, do you see this trend continuing in perpetuity, uh, more and more three-pointers? And if so, what does the league look like in five, ten years? It's a very, very good question. You know, uh, I think it, Steph and Clay obviously have a large part to do with it. Um, but, I mean, you've seen Houston, obviously, the past few years, they've been at the top in at least in three-pointers three pointers attempted. You know, it's a, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a, it's a trend, not necessarily a percentage, but you know, they, right. they, they shoot it as much as anybody. And, you know, I think it's a trend that does continue. I don't think that, you know, the typical big is going to die out. Like some people think, you know, like that Dwight Howard or Andre Drummond, I don't think they're going to just completely disappear. Cause I mean, that's, that's been basketball that can't happen, but I think the whole small ball revolution, the whole space the floor, shoot threes, I, I don't see why it would, why it would uh, change. I mean, you have the two top three-point shooting teams in the league, you know, Cleveland arguably, um, in the finals right now. And, and that's, a, that's a large reason why. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way teams play now, and it works. So, so yeah, I definitely see it continuing and, and for a little while. Well, AJ, this has been an absolute delight. I appreciate your insight. I'm sure the listeners do as well. And I'm also certain that the listeners will want to seek you out and follow your work uh, on social media and online as you cover the NBA playoffs and beyond. So how can the listeners find you? Of course, and I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, it's, you can follow me on Twitter at TweetAJNK, or uh, you, know, you can just head over to usaday.com slash sports slash NBA. Of all all sorts of good, you know, finals finals content. We have we have a lot of people over there now, and we're just, you know, trying to make it through these next two weeks as best as possible. Well, we certainly encourage the listeners to go follow your work, and uh, we certainly appreciate you having you on as well, man. I really appreciate it. You guys enjoy these next couple weeks, and and hope the the Rockets have a nice off season. Oh, we hope so. <laughs> all right, take care, buddy. You too. Thank you. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now up on The Weekly Brew, we welcome in Ethan Rothstein, who is the managing editor of The Dream Shake, SB Nation's Rockets-devoted uh, community site. Uh, Ethan, welcome in. We're glad to have you. Obviously, I'm a big fan, which is why we wanted to have you on to share your perspective and insight, particularly on the hiring of Mike D'Antoni as the coach of the Rockets going forward. Uh, but first, maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with The Dream Shake, what is it exactly you guys do over there, and why should readers come to you to find Rockets coverage? We're basically... Uh designed to be a platform for the voice of Rockets fans everywhere. Um, we have a staff of about, you know, eight to 12 writers, depending on people's moods. Um, and, you know, everyone, we, just, we all love the Rockets. And, you know, we have a lot of passion. Uh, this season kind of brought out the worst in all of Rockets fans. But, uh, <laughs> you know, our community is great. We have you know, hundreds of commenters who all, you know, participate and they write fan posts and stuff. And, you know, it's just, it's a it's a great platform uh, for Rockets fans who want to I guess have their voice heard and you know read other people 
you know, write at them with a, you know, with their interests at heart. Well, I can certainly vouch for the quality of the writing and analysis on the Dream Shake. We uh, we enjoy it over here at the podcast, and uh, certainly enjoy following the work that you guys put up there. But but curiously, you are uh, located in D.C. So how is it exactly that you came to be uh, such a big fan of the Rockets that you ended up managing a site about the Rockets? Uh, well, I'm actually from New York originally, um, and uh, it's a long boring story. But basically, I'm a twin. I have a twin brother. Uh, we used to just root against each other no matter what the sporting event. Um, <laughs> And the uh, Rockets, Knicks, NBA Finals in uh, 1994, uh, my brother immediately took up the Knicks. So it was only made sense to me to root for the Rockets. And then some awesome dude named Hakeem Olajuwon uh, blocked John Starks' three-pointer in the corner. Uh, and they won the <laughs> title. And then they won the title the next year again. And I was like, well, this is pretty fun, being a Rockets fan. I could do this. Um, and then, you know, uh, I just kind of, once I was eight years old and I chose uh, sports loyalty, you know, it never goes away. So, yeah. I mean, that was obviously the, the peak of my Rockets fandom <laughs> happened when I was uh, six years old. So, Well, depending on how old you were when the Rockets won those championships in 94, 95, that probably is the high watermark for, uh, for most Rockets fans in existence, uh, at least if you were born uh, early enough to have remembered that. But obviously the big news this week, Coach D'Antoni being hired as the coach of the Rockets. Um, I personally was not a big fan of the move when it was announced, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, kind of awe. Dang. Uh, and then I've seen some press since then that seems to be a little bit better. So my impression of the reaction is mixed. Uh, just looking at it from your perspective, wh- what seems to be the vibe around this hiring? Is this a great hire? Is this a terrible hire? Uh, I mean, it's probably somewhere in the middle, but I- I'd lean more towards it not being the right move. Um, you know, it's it's clear that D'Antoni is a, you know, a, a brilliant offensive mind. Um, he revolutionized the way that modern NBA uh, is played. Um, but it just it felt more like uh, Leslie Alexander thinking he knows uh, the most about basketball, I guess, as he said in this press conference. Um, you know, he's wanted to play like this forever. Um, he has a coach who wa- plays the way he wants to play. And the organization seems very aligned. I mean, that's probably where the positive press comes from. You know, we're tired of um, hearing about butting heads behind closed doors. So the fact that everyone seems to be on the same page is encouraging. Um, and I don't disagree with that. But, you know, ultimately the Rockets' failure last year was um, discipline and defense and chemistry, um, none of which D'Antoni has been known for over the course of his career. Um, D'Antoni was the coach when Dwight Howard and Kobe Bryant um, had their infamous, you know, locker room duels. He was even, he was the guy in the middle of the famous picture in the, you know, the training room with Dwight in the, you know, ice on his shoulders. Um, Dwight D'Antoni was there in the middle of that photo. I mean, it was staged and stupid, but... You know, I don't know how many Rockets fans really remember that, but, you know, D'Antoni has a history of not great locker rooms, and that's kind of the last thing that the Rockets need. Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of it. It strikes me as a curious hire. I mean, D'Antoni's heyday with the seven seconds or less Phoenix offense uh, has it's sometime passed now at this point. Obviously, he had Steve Nash. We don't have a Steve Nash here. So who is it that's in Leslie Alexander's ear that's pushing him to make this sort of coaching hire? Because D'Antoni hasn't had any recent success. I mean, you say Leslie Alexander wants to be the smartest guy in the room. Uh, who, who's telling him that this is the guy that's going to make him look like the smartest guy in the room? I don't know that anyone's in, Le- in Alexander, Mr. Alexander's ears is on the Rockets organization calls him. I mean, that's the thing about being the you know sole owner, you know, vast majority owner of the business. You know, he can just decide something, and it, that's what has to happen. Uh, you know, and I don't. I think, you know, there were lots of leaks from the front office 
over the course of this coaching search, which took like a month. The Rockets had an opening before almost anyone, and it turns out, and they were the last team, I think, officially to hire a coach. I'm going to hire a coach who I don't think interviewed with any other teams. Um, mm. So I just, you know, I don't feel like Daryl Morey was there telling him to, you know, interview D'Antoni, who flamed out with the Lakers. The reason Dwight Howard left money on the table to come to Houston partly was that year with the Lakers. Um, so I, I really think it's this is uh, Alexander's decision. That's This is who he wanted. He wanted a guy who plays fast, who plays up-tempo. Um, and it, ultimately, you know, he's the guy who pulls the trigger. He's the guy who cuts the checks. Um, you know, there were reports that Maury, um, or and maybe not Maury directly, but the Rockets' front office um, had other people they wanted to interview, like Jeff Van Gundy and Frank Vogel, um, and ownership um, put the kibosh on those two candidates who, in a lot of Rockets' minds, made the most sense for the opening. Oh, um, no. And they didn't interview either of them. In fact, they interviewed Kenny Smith, which seems like kind of the exact same thing that Leslie Alexander would do, not Daryl Morey. So, I mean, it just kind of seems all along the way that no one's in Les's ear, Les is in everyone else's ears. So I firmly believe that you love this team like I love this team. And the scuttlebutt around here on the podcast has been Jeff Van Gundy should be the guy. And it's discouraging to hear that he wasn't even interviewed. I mean, just looking at all the coaches that did get picked up here, obviously Houston being the last to hire a head coach. Can you think of a name that would have been better than Van Gundy? I mean, a guy who had some success, has a good reputation, a guy that we all like to listen to, at least around here in town. I mean, who who should have been the guy if not D'Antoni, not Van Gundy? So I actually don't, don't agree with that. Um, um, I, I said we have we have our own uh, Dream Shake podcast, and I said in our most recent episode that you know my criteria for head coach is really someone who has been a part of recent success in the NBA. Um, and Van Gundy hasn't been; he hasn't coached for ten years. Um, and so I know he's close to the game, but you know by with his job with ESPN, I know he's a smart guy. Um, but I just felt that you know the NBA has changed so much um, since 2006; it would it would have made me a lot more comfortable because, you know, like kind of like Daryl Morey said um, at the press conference yesterday, the Rockets are trying to compete for a championship this coming year. You know, there's no, there's no rebuilding phase. Whatever they're doing this off season, it's with the goal in mind of competing for a championship next year. Um, so I feel like there would have been too much of a learning curve with Van Gundy getting back into the way modern basketball is played uh, and, you know, with new nutritionists. I mean, he's always railing uh, on the air, about all the different ridiculous things that the modern NBA modern NBA players do, like rest. Um, he's 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 been on the air many many times saying like I think we rest players too much. When it's basically proven, if you look at the top teams in the league, that that is a winning strategy. So um, I didn't really think Van Gundy. I liked Frank Vogel. Um, the fact that the Rockets didn't even reach out is astounding. Obviously, it's not a guarantee that he would have taken the job over the Magic job that he wound up with. Um, but the fact that they didn't interview who I thought was the best coach on the market, um, it was really, I mean, that was disappointing and that made me really angry as a Rockets fan. Well, with a talent like Frank Vogel, it's certainly discouraging to hear the Rockets didn't even reach out for an interview. Uh, but even if they had, I mean, you look at the magic, the low expectations they had there, the, the wealth of young talent they have and all the upside. I mean, I gotta believe. Do you think anyone on that team, 
is ever going to be as good as James Harden is right now. No, no, I don't think so. Um, or, or it would be unlikely at best, I would say. But just thinking about career track and expectations, uh, the need to win now versus the need to build for the future uh, in Orlando, I mean, I just I like that situation. I would like that situation better as a coach in terms of long-term stability and being able to build something versus having the expectations of winning a championship now here in Houston. So I don't blame him. But, but of course, the Rockets didn't even reach out. So that's discouraging to hear as well. One thing that's going to make a big difference uh, in this offseason is what happens with Dwight Howard. And so I would have bet my life that Dwight Howard was gone just uh, a couple of months ago. You know, all indications that he was out of here. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing rumblings in the press that maybe he's not out. Maybe he's back for another season. We don't know. What are you hearing on that front? I mean, I don't really want him back particularly. Um, I, I kind of expected these rumblings. Um, you know, all year in uh, Dwight Howard is going to opt out at the end of the season and explore free agency, but he's not necessarily against coming back. Um, but that coming back, I think everyone had assumed the Rockets would want him back and would offer him some sort of longer-term deal rather than just one year. Um, but this season went basically as poorly as it could have gone for Dwight Howard in a number of ways. Um, and he's, I think, tried to redeem himself through the media um, after the season by going inside the NBA, by doing this long interview with uh, ESPN's Jackie McMullen, both of which kind of served to throw different members of the Rockets organization under the bus, like James Harden, like Daryl Morey, um, you know, calling them out by name, saying things that they did that upset him and were the reason that he didn't try. Um, so I think what has happened since then is that he's tried to mend his image. His agent, said, his agent has reached out to various front offices, and the market is probably still not what he was hoping it was. Um, because, frankly, he had a terrible year in every facet of being a professional athlete. Um, He put up good numbers, but um, no one probably in the NBA did more damage to their future earnings this year than Dwight Howard, I would imagine. Um, So I think that's the rumblings is that maybe he's trying to send out signals to the rest of the market like, hey, you know, you need to bid for my services or I might just opt back in. I still would be shocked if he were back next year. And if he were, I mean, if he opted in, I think uh, Maury would do everything he could to trade him for pennies on the dollar. I think there's just no way that this situation works. Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, I certainly don't appreciate what he brings to the table, both in terms of his on-court performance and his off-court antics. Uh, Both certainly leave a lot to be desired. But speaking of guys who might be back next year, uh, on your own site, I'm reading rumblings about Jeremy Lin back in a Rockets uniform. Obviously, D'Antoni and Lin have the New York Knicks connection. Um, Is that something we might see? Uh, And is it something to celebrate if, in fact, we do see Jeremy Lin back here in Houston? Uh, I mean, it depends on your perspective. As someone who runs a Rockets website with an active commenting community, uh, the idea of Jeremy Lin back in Houston bringing his copious amount of fans, very, very passionate fans there, the Bernie Sanders fans of the NBA. Um, <laughs> now, that's not an appealing thought to me. But there actually have been rumors kind of all year that both sides were open to a reunion. Um, I think, first of all, the Rockets paid Jeremy Lin more money than anyone else is ever going to pay him again. Um, <laughs> Second of all, Mike D'Antoni is, is, is the coach under which Linsanity happened in New York. It's probably D'Antoni's best coaching moment of the last 10 years is the three weeks that Jeremy Lin captured the imagination of the world, basically. Um, and the Rockets do still need a backup point guard. Uh, <laughs> Ty Lawson was a disaster last year. It's just Patrick Beverly on the roster. That's it. They don't have, I mean, unless you consider Andrew Gaudelock a viable backup point guard. Jason Terry was 100 years old last year, and I was playing like 20 minutes in a game because the Rockets are so desperately needed backup point guard. And if you look out there on the free agent market, 
there's like no one. You have Mike Conley at the top, and then after that, it's just really slim pickings. And when you look at that, the idea of Jeremy Lin coming back as a player under D'Antoni is a lot more appealing. And it frankly makes a depressing amount of sense because I would imagine it has a distinct possibility of happening. So there's a lot of moving pieces, obviously, in this offseason. But given that level of uncertainty, uh, what's your projection for the upcoming year? I mean, it has to be better than last season, right? Uh, yeah, I would imagine so. Um, you know, this season, it, it left a, a horrible taste in everyone's mouth. And it was so hard not to just be fatalist after the season ended and say just blow the team up. Um, but, you know, the, the more and more distance I have from the season, the more and more I think, you know what, we still have James Harden. You heard Dan Tony say in the press conference, um, lots of coaches would kill for one of like the seven best players in the NBA. And whatever mm-hmm. you know changed about his perception uh, in the media this year, uh, he was unbelievable this season. He did not have a great defensive year. He set a season record for turnovers. But that's why I say this because I don't know if it's out there that much. So I want to put it out there as much as I can. Uh, James Harden is the only NBA. James Harden this past season, the only player in NBA history. To average 29 points a game, seven rebounds a game, seven assists a game, six rebounds a game, while play in every single game. He's the only player to ever do that. Michael Jordan, Oscar Robertson, and LeBron James are the only guys to ever put up those numbers over a full season, but none of them played 82 games when they did that. Um, so the fact that he led the league in turnovers is a huge byproduct of the fact that he was 100% of the Rockets offense. Um, and the defense is kind of inexcusable, except when you think about how much he does for the offense. And then, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think? He came to the, the season not in as great shape as he was in last year. Uh, so what gives me the most optimism about this year is that there's a parallel between the offseason before 2014-2015 when Harden was the runner-up for MVP and, the, and this coming offseason, which is USA Basketball. Um, Harden's mm-hmm. almost definitely going to be on the Olympic team. It'd be an absolute disgrace if he wasn't. Um, and that summer kept him in shape before his MVP year. And the year before he, he or, you know, his MVP runner up, the year before that, we heard the same things then as we heard last year, which is he's too tired on off from offense mm-hmm. to play defense. And he came into camp out of shape. This summer, he's going to be worked into shape because he's going to be going against LeBron and Kevin Durant every single day in practice. And Stephen Curry and Kawhi Leonard. I mean, these are guys who are going to be on the, on the dream team with him. So I think he's going to have a huge year next year. Um, and it almost doesn't matter uh, if everyone else is basically the same because he'll be so much better and in shape. That's my prediction. And I think Clint Capella will have another summer to improve, and I think he'll be a huge part of the team. Hopefully, Donatus Modinus resigns. I think will be pretty cheap based on what happened this past year with everything. Good um, and, and, I mean, what they really need more than anything else is a power forward. Um, I don't think Demo can be trusted with a started job, but I, you know, I would certainly like him as the third third or fourth big on the team for sure. Um, so if they get a solid power, no matter what, I think they're going to win more games. Um, the difference is going to be what Daryl Morey does with the rest of the roster. In regards to James Harden, I mean, I see what you see. Uh, I am a season ticket holder. I watch a lot of Rockets basketball. And James Harden had a historically great offensive year, yet failed to make an all-NBA team one, two, or three. I mean, what is the deal there? Is it an issue with his perception around the league, his defensive problems? What prevented him from uh, making what I thought should have been a sure, uh, at least all-NBA second team? So I don't think it's actually a perception thing in the league. I think it's a perception thing in the media, which right. kind of pains me to say it as a member of the media, technically, I guess. Um, but it really is, you know, it's the way he plays, which is 
admittedly not the most aesthetically pleasing. Um, as a Rockets fan, I enjoyed it a lot more, but just because it usually means the Rockets win if he plays well in in his way. But you know, it, it he averages more free throws than anyone else by far, um, and it slows the game down. So so that he already has strike one against the people don't enjoy watching him play, and then he has you know if this were five years ago and Vine were in the thing, the perception of the media would be a lot better, but everyone sees these same <laughs> six-second clips of his defense taken completely out of context, and they see that more than they see actual games now. I mean, right. that's I think that's the main problem, is that people have six-second impressions of everyone now. Um, so you don't see the, the full product as it was on display this year. Um, so I think that perception has kind of dwarfed reality at this point. Um, but I think Harden can get it back next year, um, you know, the same way he got it back last year. Um, so, I, but that's what happened. I think that the perception trump reality, and I think, I hope in the aftermath of the voting, when the road, you know, when voters look back and see the numbers that people put up, the performances that people had, and see where they voted, that they will see their mistake. Because I think it, it's an obvious mistake, um, and I think too many people will just punish him for their own preconceived notions, but. Um, you know, ultimately, it's not something worth getting too worked up about. But you know, I'm a big fan of James Harden, and it's just it's a shame that you know, it's a shame that he's not treated fairly uh, on a national level because I really do think it's unfair. Well, Ethan, you have uh, talked me off of the ledge a little bit. I'm considerably more optimistic than I was when we started having this conversation a few minutes ago, so I appreciate you for that, and I also appreciate the the work you do with the Dream Shake, and I certainly would encourage all of our listeners to go visit the Dream Shake, to subscribe, to follow, to locate you on social media, and follow your work, and so if you could let the listeners know, uh, how can they find you uh, on the interwebs? Uh, well, it's www.thedreamshake.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's my uh, full name, Ethan Rothstein. Uh, I'll be tweeting tonight as we record this uh, 10 minutes before game one starts. Nice. A little peek behind the curtains there for the listeners. Uh, some inside baseball. We are recording this immediately before game one of the NBA Finals. Well, Ethan, it has been a pleasure. Uh, I appreciate your work, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much, man. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And thanks to Kevin Eschenfelder for joining us to talk Astros. It's finally great to talk about a team that's winning here in Houston. Astros, as we are recording on Sunday, have won 10 out of the last 12 games. Arguably one of the hottest teams right now in the American League West. So it's good to finally see them do well. And uh, Kevin, great job with the uh, the two basketball interviews. Yeah, I love talking basketball, and those guys are great uh, to follow. I certainly encourage you to go find them on Twitter and social media. I enjoyed breaking down what's happening with the Rockets. Uh, and actually, Rothstein kind of talked me off the ledge, as I mentioned. I am more optimistic going into next season than I was before we had that conversation. So I hope that is uh, the case with all the listeners as well. And then obviously the NBA Finals, uh, very exciting stuff. The listeners have the advantage of having seen Game 2, which we're going to watch tonight. Uh, so I'm jealous of them for that. But uh, it's it's hopefully, hopefully live up to the Western Conference Finals, which were mind-blowing. So thanks to those two guys for joining us to talk basketball. Always good to see the Astros doing well, of course. Um, I'll probably be tuning into a few more games this week. Um, definitely want to uh, give the Astros my eyes if they are doing well. So, um, But yeah, d- great interviews, uh, great commentary. Looking forward to uh, football season, though. It's right around the corner. Yeah, it's great to see the Astros doing well. I actually bought baseball for dummies last week, so I've been reading it. And now that the Astros are doing so well, I'm actually paying attention more. So it's really great to see the Astros win. Um, and I'm looking forward to football season coming up in a couple months. 
Yeah, I love having the Astros come around, and all of you guys are finally starting to like baseball. I absolutely love it. But uh, and you- shout out, shout out to Langham Creek, uh, who is not even slated to make the playoffs, and knocked off Deer Park, the number one team in the country according to Baseball America at one point. So I enjoyed watching that game. That was really exciting stuff. A game three win there, Langham Creek baseball and Armando Cedeno, all those guys. Uh, thanks so much for letting me cover y'all. Yeah, and they're heading to the state baseball playoffs this weekend, and uh, it's kind of cool when you ever you have that opportunity. But speaking of the Astros, they have a huge huge series this week against the Texas Rangers. You can follow all of those games on Root Sports Southwest. Uh, definitely recommend following them. Kevin Eschenfelder does the pregame show, so watch him 30 minutes before each game. But uh, one thing that we are disappointed about this week, and that's the uh, lack of iTunes reviews. And uh, Kevin, tell us about it. What, what do I have to do? I'm asking you, the listeners, what is it that I, I'll do it. Contact me. You can get me on Twitter at KMichaelCook. You can email me here at the podcast, the Weekly Brew Podcast at Gmail. You tell me what I need to do to get your iTunes review, and I swear to God I'll do it. That's all. He is legitimately serious. I'm not even kidding. I look so serious right now because I am. I am deathly serious. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of concerned. Uh, I'm, so for our listeners, think of the most absurd thing that Kevin can do this week for an iTunes reviews. And we will actually film it and post it on our website. So make it absurd. I will uh, damn well do it, too. Yeah. Send Kevin a tweet at, at KMichaelCook. Or you can also check us out on our social media platforms. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, you can follow all of our work on WeeklyBrewcast.com. We post the content there each Monday morning. And uh, again, we had a great episode today, and I I absolutely loved all the content that we had. And uh, again, thanks to Kevin Eschenfelder, thanks to Ethan Rothstein, and thanks to AJ Newharth-Koish from USA Today for joining us. But uh, we hope you enjoy the content as well. And for my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, and Dolores Zazano, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 